Chapter 5 Gubla, Ancient Byblos The Mediterranean seaport of Byblos was much different 3,500 years ago when it was called Gubla, a loosely controlled Egyptian outpost. It was run by a man named Ribhada. He was the mayor, born into the position, like his father and his father before him. The title had been in their family for generations. Today, Mayor Ribhada was worried, as usual. Are you ready? he asked his scribe, Girgos. Wringing his hands, the mayor paced back and forth anxiously before the scribe's desk. Yes, Girgos replied, as he plopped a lump of wet red clay onto the tabletop. He rolled it flat until it was about five by nine inches. Grabbing an eight-inch-long wedge-shaped reed used for writing, he looked up at the mayor expectantly. Ribhada remained distraught, wandering in small circles. He pulled his head wrap, a plain white keffiyeh, from his head and placed it on his chair. Still pacing, he tried to think things through. The political makeup of this region of Egypt's empire was changing. Locally, the Amuru, a group of castaways, outlaws, and dispossessed, were threatening not only Gubla, but also Tyre, Beirut, and Arwat. He viewed the Amorites' progress with increasing alarm, and the Hittites, a warrior kingdom north, were pushing south, wresting Kadesh from Egyptian control, approaching Baalbek and ultimately Gubla. The mayor of Gubla worked diligently to be the first to let his great king, Akhenaten, know any news occurring in his neck of the woods. Start with this, Ribhada said, and began dictating. May Ishtar, the mistress of Gubla, grant power to my lord. At the feet of my lord, my son, I fall seven times and seven times. Let the king, my lord, know that Gubla, your... The mayor paused, stopped pacing, and stared out the doorway. This was his harbor, and he was still missing ships. He requested Akhenaten's help, retrieving two boats the mayor of Beirut borrowed but never returned. Akhenaten never replied. How could he instill in the pharaoh the sense of dire emergency he felt? He must do so in a mild, yet supplicating manner, as he did not want to make Akhenaten angry. Egyptians coveted Canaan's mineral and agricultural wealth. As early as the third millennium B.C., the Egyptian kingdom established trading posts in the coastal city of Ashkelon and in Gezer, using donkeys to transport products to Egypt. A few centuries later, the Egyptians began trading by ship with the seaports of Tyre, Gubla, Samira, and Arwad on the ancient coast of Lebanon. In Gubla, Poor Ribhada woke up every morning, wondering how soon the ever-present battles would come his way. His was a small but essential outpost, and he relied on Egypt to protect him. Ribhada felt he was in dire peril, and help from the pharaoh was his only hope. He truly believed he was the most essential vassal of pharaoh. Like Abiyamilku of Tyre and Abdiheba of Jerusalem, Ribhada was educated in Egypt and enthroned by the pharaoh. But Akhenaten was faced with many issues, south, east, and west of the Nile, as well as north in the land of the Canaanites. His most laborious task was to maintain ties to and control of his subjugated areas. Plus, Egyptian royal influence over ancient Israel was minimal because of wavering signals from the pharaoh. Akhenaten had his hands full quelling domestic skirmishes. "'Are you ready, sir?' Girgos the scribe asked Ribhada. The scribe possessed a skill few others in the ancient world possessed. He could record a person's thoughts and words with characters placed on a piece of moist clay. 
At the time, it was considered a mighty near-magical feat. The mayor nodded. Girgos, being highly learned and exceptionally skilled, knew how to impart a sense of urgency, suggesting, ever so carefully, Pharaoh must come quickly to the aid of Gubla. Girgos would ensure Ribhada did so in a manner which did not overstep his subservient boundaries. Listening to the mayor, he deftly carved cuneiform symbols into wet clay with his stylus. Ribhada observed closely, although he couldn't read the symbols. The scribe knew what he was doing. Having studied at the tablet house at Mari for nine years, he learned well the intricacies of etching symbols onto clay, symbols powerful enough to bring any thought, any conversation, back to life, verbatim. Courts no longer had to rely on unreliable memory. When he finished his thoughts, the mayor stopped and straightened his back, pulling his linen thob close. Life was too good for Ribhada. He was overweight and not in good physical condition any more. His back hurt, and he had a headache. Are you finished? Can you read it to me, Girgos? Running his hand through his light brown hair, the scribe nodded, grabbed the stylus, and began. May Ishtar, the mistress of Gubla, grant power to my lord. At the feet of my lord, my son, I fall seven times and seven times. Let the king, my lord, know that Gubla, your servant, is well. However, the war against me is severe. Our sons and daughters are gone, as well as the furnishings of the houses, because they have been sold to keep us alive. My field is a wife without a husband, lacking in cultivation. I have repeatedly written to the palace regarding the distress afflicting me, but no one has paid attention. Let the king heed the words of his servant. They are taking all the lands of the king, my lord. Nothing is done to Abdiashirta, although you know he is stealing from us and threatens to attack us. Let the king, my lord, know Supiluliuma, the king of Hadi, has overcome all the areas that belong to Tushrata, the king of Mitanni, the land of the great kings. Abdiashirta, the slave, the dog, has gone with him. Send archers. The hostility toward me is great. And send a medje to the city of Gubla. I will heed his words. Okay, that's good, Ribhata sighed, scanning the tablet. This message was his umpteenth plea to the pharaoh for help. Are my letters being received, he wondered? Why is there no response? Why is there no one to help? He had been as careful, as dutiful as possible towards his lord, the king of the world, the great king, the king of the universe. And now I am forsaken. How could Pharaoh forget me, forget I am his long-time loyal vassal? Do you want this sent by courier or through the Medje? Girgos asked. The courier, Kalaya, is coming west from Damascus. He will be here in three days. After Gubla, he will travel south to Tyre, where he boards a ship to Egypt. A diplomatic corps of messengers developed during the Armana period to enhance communication between kingdoms. Travel was slow back then. The messengers traveled in chariots or with caravans that used mules to carry goods. The chariots could only cover 20 to 24 miles in an average day, unless things were really pressing. Convoys were twice as slow. This is too important to send by courier, Ribhada said. I want it sent with a medje on the first ship returning to Egypt. The medje were an elite paramilitary force used by Egypt's rulers to protect valuable areas, especially places of pharaonic interest like capital cities, royal cemeteries, and the borders of Egypt. They were also used to guard ships and caravans where the cargo was of utmost importance. A medje unit was assigned to many of the boats traveling the trade routes between Gubla and Egypt. Ribhada felt 
sending his message through Akhenaten's special forces team was the safest route. This direct connection to Armana, straight to Akhenaten, enabled Ripata to conduct official business through a personal conduit to the ear of the pharaoh. It was something he grew to treasure, and to expect. He felt his city's needs were listened to more closely. In the past he was correct to think this way, but not any more. Now he was frightened. He felt ignored and forsaken. The mayor pulled a ceramic ornament from under his thob. Prepare this for Armana, he said. He rolled the cylinder seal across the clay tablet, applying his family's official stamp onto the document. Wiping the cylinder clean, he replaced it under his robe and wandered the room, all the time wondering, Where is Egypt? Where is Hakanaten? The mayor stopped and thought, The Medje are still available, aren't they, Girgos? Yes, they safeguarded Pahanate on his return to Egypt a few weeks ago. Pahanate is Akhenaten's commissioner in Samira. This worries me, Gergos. I've heard Abdiashirta now controls Samira. Standing in the doorway, looking at the busy harbor, the young scribe and the panicked mayor shared cups of wine. For the last one hundred years, pharaonic rule was the norm. It was the reason their lives were stable and lucrative, and things went smoothly. I always thought Gubla was special, Ribhata complained to Gergos wistfully. Gubla was an excellent prize for Egypt. It was the port which supplied Egypt with Lebanon Cyprus timbers, the only material in the world able to bridge the ceilings of the massive stone courts and rock temples of Egypt's monumental edifices. Egypt is the greatest empire, and yet they allow these Amuru to remain, Ripata complained. A persistent irritant, a rock in my shoe. You know what, Gergos? Ripata asked as he poured each of them more drink. No, sir, what? We have worked hard to bring order to our lives, not like these barbarians in the hills. The Amuru dress in animal skins. They live in tents, and they offer no sacrifices. They live without homes. They eat raw meat and dig up truffles. They force themselves onto lands they do not own, lands we do not want them to use. Why must we run from them? The mayor ranted in both frustration and panic. Girgos nodded his head to show he was listening. This was an often-heard complaint, and nothing either of them could fix alone. "'It is good you mentioned the problem of Abdi Ashurta,' Girgos said. "'The Samuru problem will go away when Pharaoh replies,' Ripata said, sipping more wine. But he knew his world was crumbling, and he couldn't wait for Pharaoh's help forever. He would have to make other alliances. "'But if he doesn't, I would like you to begin direct talks with Abdi Ashurta, or Aziro, his son. I'm told you are distantly related to the family.' Both Abdiashirta and Girgos were Amorites, a race of tall, light-skinned people who came from the northeast, near the Caspian Sea. Because their six-foot stature was unique in the Middle East, Moses described them as the last remnant of the giants, although they weren't much taller than many people today. Amorites were represented on Egyptian monuments with fair skin, light hair, blue eyes, curved or hooked noses, and pointed beards. Girgos was a learned Amuru from an educated and noble lineage. His descendants left the hills years ago when his family moved eastward to the Sumerian city of Mari during a severe drought. In more settled urban centers of Mesopotamia, Girgos's ancestors gave up their sheep and goat flocks and went to school. More wine? Yes, please. Oh, the older fellow shook the flask in his hand. We seem to have run out. Sami, he yelled through the doorway into another room. Can you bring more wine, please? He set the empty jug on the table and continued. Your family has always been respectable, Girgus. Sami scurried in with another flask of wine and filled their glasses. 
Thank you, Girgos accepted his newly filled glass. I always think it is best not to make trouble. Just keep a low profile. Best not to make yourself a big target, sir. Tell me, what things have you heard of Abdiashirta? Abdiashirta's vision is to unite the Amuru of the Orantes and Bekaa Valleys into a kingdom, and he must be quite persuasive. Although a bandit and a scoundrel, he has a way of talking to the local tribes. With many groups of plunderers under his control, he can intimidate more tribes by offering them allegiance in exchange for protection from the very bandits he controls. Now he is quite powerful in his challenging the cities north and west of Gubla. Girgos, is it possible for you to find a way to talk to Abdiashirta? Girgos hesitated. Ribhada, you were complaining about these people just a minute ago. Do you truly want me to open this avenue? I am trying to stay alive. I must use all means at my disposal. I cannot keep things the way they are without Pharaoh's help, and he has forsaken me. He is forcing me to form alliances with others. I'll find out tonight. Girgos wasn't a spy. He was a servant loyal to whoever was in charge. He preferred not to think of this shifting loyalty as a personality defect. It was the only way he knew to continue to work at his trade and earn a good living. He was a learned man, a scribe, and he was prone to stay on the conservative side of life and to shy from rash decisions. However, there was a significant change in the wind, and Girgos felt Ribhada was right. If they continued to wait for Pharaoh, it could well lead to their death. Girgos returned home to discuss the situation with his wife, Amina. Pushing through a heavy wooden door, he entered a small anteroom dividing the street from the household and walked to the sunny, open courtyard surrounding his house. Amina was bent down, arranging flatbread in the fire. She stood up and brushed crumbs from the green woolen frock she wore over her white linen calisiris, an expensive, exquisite dress of Egyptian flax. She glanced up at her husband and immediately became concerned. He was deep in thought and frowning. Giergi! She put her hands on either side of his unshaven face, smashing down his whiskers. He smelled her perfume. Hey there, she said, and shook his head gently. His face softened as she came close to him, her green eyes wide with concern and worry for her beloved. Hello, is anyone home? She smiled at him until he returned the smile, swept her into a hug, and kissed her. Girgi, I thought we could play a game of twenty squares tonight, for articles of clothing. She gathered her heavy, shining, light brown hair behind her head, and tied it together into a ponytail, coyly dropping her hands to her hips, showing off her growing belly bulge the newest member of Girgos's family. Soon, my love, he replied. She had done it again, made him forget his problems. Girgos had a beautiful and loving wife, and he felt blessed. She reached up and tussled his sandy brown hair to keep his attention. Okay, do you want to talk or hug the children, she asked. He thought briefly. Children, then food. Amina smiled and nodded her head. Squeezing his hand, she left to find the children. Three tow-headed children raced from the house to climb onto the paternal tower. All three were small enough to be lifted up and hugged, and young enough to want those hugs. Jamel, the firstborn, was the first to arrive. Being the eldest, he ran the fastest, pushing himself ahead of Mosba, his irritating little brother, and Lamria, his spoiled little sister. Amina and Sonia, their helper, carried cups, silverware, and plates to the table. Sonia went back into the house to bring out the lamb stew. Amina was a dutiful, loving wife, allowing Girgos to do the job he was trained for, while she raised their children. His salary was more than adequate to pay for Sonia, who helped lighten Amina's workload. 
The two women shared mutual respect, enjoying a strong friendship. Sonia returned with steaming stew. She was younger than Amina by eight years. Sonia carried a few more pounds than Amina, and her hair was darker. Dressed in a dark madraga, a long woolen dress, she wore the attire Bedouin women have worn since time immemorial. Her hair was pulled back in a black woolen yusaba, a hairband wrapped around the head and tied at the back. Sonia's family came from the same village as Abdiashurta in the hills west of Ebla. Sonia grew up with Aziru, Abdiashurta's son, and Girgus knew this. With Sonia's help, he knew he could find a way to meet with the man. More flatbread, Girgos? Amina asked as they ate. No, thanks. Hey, Sonia, do you remember when I brought the mayor of Byblos, my boss, here for dinner? Mm-hmm, I remember. At the moment he is very apprehensive about a fellow named Abdiashurta. I believe he is from your village, is he not? Yes. Have you heard something bad about him? Sonia replied cautiously. No, not him personally, he lied, but there is talk his men are invading other cities, and I must plan. I must protect my family, and you too. We'll move elsewhere if need be, but I don't know where yet. If I talk to Abdiashurta, maybe I can figure out where. What about Pharaoh, Girgos? Amina asked. Isn't he helping Ribhata? He looked at her, shrugging his shoulders and shaking his head. I don't know what is going on in Egypt, but whatever it is, we no longer seem important to Akhenaten. End of chapter.